going against what I said earlier, where you have to optimize for multiple things. If you said you're doing a movement program, do you want to optimize for power output of the athlete or employee at the end or for meaningful social connection? I'd be, I'd say meaningful social connection. I couldn't care less about power output. Guys, welcome back. Uh, Drew and Alex here. Uh, we don't often do this where we immediately after an episode go back and record the intro, but I think what you'll find in, in, in the episode we have today, there are a lot of nuggets, a lot of things that were fresh on the mind, and so we wanted to get something down pretty much immediately. Alex? Yeah, so our guest is Newton Chang. He got his bachelor's in electrical engineering at the University of Illinois, which led to a really interesting project helping design hardware for the PlayStation 3, which is pretty neat. After his bachelor's, he spent a lot of time working in technical roles. He actually also spent some time working as a personal trainer. After all that, he got his MBA at Berkeley before joining Google. You may have heard of it. Yeah, you might have heard of Google. Um, he has spent nearly a decade and a half at Google now, culminating in his current position as their director of global health and performance. He leads a team across the world with a mission to support the physical, mental, social, and spiritual health and well-being of Google's workforce. And as you'll hear in the episode, he's also a competitive master's powerlifter. He has set numerous California state records, national records. He has won a world bronze medal, and he's a two-time U.S. national champion. So he is no slouch in the powerlifting space as well. And we want to say that we love all of our guests and we love all of our episodes, but it's always particularly exciting. And I would say interesting when we bring somebody on who is, you know, unaffiliated with the military, but speaks so directly to, in, in Newton's case, leadership, cultural change, ways to go about just, you know, fostering a high performing culture. And I think that anybody I, I, I don't know. It's weird. Like Google is one of those things where obviously, you know, I've never worked there. You've never worked there. But when you think of Google and the things that you see online pertaining to their culture and the way that they go about just conducting work, like it's always been this sort of like gold standard. And to hear Newton kind of pull back the curtain a little bit and speak to how they've come about creating that was fascinating. People I've worked with in personal know, sometimes when I get up in front of a group, one of the comments I'll make is that if we end up going down a rabbit hole, I'm happy to do that because it's probably more productive than whatever I was planning to talk about in the first place. And I think this conversation was a classic example of we ended up talking about several themes that were entirely unplanned. I did not expect them to come up. We hadn't really prepared anything on it. They just kind of emerged naturally in the conversation and they contain a density of valuable wisdom that I thought was pretty incredible. There's parts of this that hopefully will speak to senior leaders. There's parts of this that will hopefully speak to folks that are, you know, we talk about embedded humor performance and and how, what you kind of need to do to create that cultural change. And I think you mentioned like rabbit holes and it, it seems like despite the number of rabbit holes we went down, it all came back to the the people component and you'll hear Newton talk about, you know, qualitative versus quantitative metrics and how you actually show return on investment for 
a program that is driving a culture that is willing to hang its hat on subjective metrics. I think that probably for me was one of the more valuable takeaways of, you know, and we joked about it when we we're, were talking to him, like if, if ever there were a conversation with the military about, you know, making friends as a metric, like they would want to see that on a PowerPoint slide with a red, yellow, green chart next to it. And I think it's interesting to hear somebody who is literally in a leadership role at one of the highest performing organizations in the world speak to the importance of subjective and qualitative metrics. I mean, that's kind of one of the reasons why we wanted to start this podcast in the first place is that seems to be a theme that comes up over and over again as something that is really important, but yet not one that I see a lot of folks in a a data-driven, objective-driven environment turn to. Yeah, when I when I first reached out to Newton, I was pretty sure this was going a couple of directions in terms of our conversation. One is he's been in public a lot recently talking about mental health issues, and he talks a lot about powerlifting kind of stuff. So I was very much expecting a kind of physical fitness and or mental health oriented conversation. And as Drew mentioned, it ended up being kind of all orbiting around the idea of meaningful social connection as the output of basically everything they do. So really interesting conversation that I hope basically any audience listening to this can get a lot out of. Yeah. And last thing I'll say too, and we we mentioned this with all of our episodes, there's a whole heap of show notes that are going to come along with this one. A lot of resources that he mentions, a lot of folks that we're going to look to chase down to bring on in future episodes, because again, I think there's a lot of value to be had speaking to folks within the DOD and the military, but there's probably, you know, an equivalent amount of value, if not more, bringing on people that are unaffiliated and can provide lessons from environments, you know, you know, maybe parallel or different from the space that we work in every single day. So again, hopefully you guys enjoy this, head over to the website afterwards to check out the show notes, dive down any of the rabbit holes we we talk about here and um, yeah, enjoy. If you just want me to talk about powerlifting and geek out on it, I could do that for a while. <laughs> I think you're going to lose a lot of listeners. I don't know. You might, you would be surprised. We did a whole episode on, on weightlifting not too long ago and people loved it. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I, I like, I could go like very, very deep into like how I'm applying the safety squat bar to figure out my double bend knee bend technique so that I can squeeze more poundage out of my squat. That's awesome. So I could go all the way there. I am, I think one thing that does not come up in health and well-being discussions, but is quite important is the reason I do powerlifting is, I mean, part of it's fun. Part of it is I enjoy the sport, but part of it is it's a practice of mastery, which I think is a fundamental thing to train yourself in as you navigate life and you take on more and more complex situations, especially if you seek to achieve. And so I think uh, the philosophy around that activity and how we think about practices of mastery in our life, that is something I spend a lot of time talking about or, or thinking about. And then the last one where I've been playing with this idea a little bit and I've implemented in a few workshops and I'm, I'm surprised that it resonates with it's actually kind of working in, in creating quality of discussion is 
when we talk about health and well-being or when we talk about performance, the discussion often anchors around like, well, what's the framework and therefore what do I optimize? My contention is if you look at the data of how people's health and well-being, especially mental health, burnout rates, et cetera, they continue to worsen over time. I think what we're lacking is not so much the right model. It is probably having a flexibility and a capacity, a mental capacity to handle complexity and therefore to adjust your model on the fly because any model is just a boiling down of an infinitely complex system. So it's not actually reality. And therefore you need a certain mental agility and a certain capacity to navigate that complexity. And when I frame the, the health and well-being discussion around that, and I ask people to start piercing into like, well, what are your mental models and where do they break down? A whole other conversation starts up that's actually really productive. So, okay, off the back of that, how, and this, I mean, this is a question coming from somebody who, to be quite frank, wasn't aware that Google even had a human performance, you know, set up. How do you... How do you weave that into what I can imagine is a pretty complex system? Yeah. So just to to be clear, you know, if you think about, uh, say, human performance uh, more more academically, and this is this is like going off of like a, a very standard definition, and I know it's progressed since then. We we don't at have what I would call actually a a human performance function. You have various teams between my team, which is the health and performance team. So I oversee a series of amenities, mainly around movement and recovery that are built into our workplace experience. You have teams like benefits uh, that provide both your healthcare plan as well as some proactive health and well-being services. And then you have other teams like employee health and safety. So some things that might be covered by a human performance function, they're kind of distributed and it, it, it's not centralized the same way. Now, my team, the reason we call it the health and performance team is we wanted to make it clear the reason we offer these amenities, it's not just for you to be healthy. Like we're also here to, as, as a company, accomplish things and achieve our mission. So it has to be the intersection of how do these things work together, health and well-being, and performance at both the individual and collective level. So it it sounds like you you've arrived at something that I kind of found after a little bit because I entered this through like the physical fitness space, the strength and conditioning kind of stuff, and and the more I saw and the more I learned, it started to stand out that mindset played a much bigger role than any like tiny variable we could play with in the way people exercise or something like that. Is that is that something you try to like? carry through into how you guys deliver programming for Google employees? Like how does that, how does that approach to it play out professionally for you? Yeah. So largely one of the things that's, that's built into Google culture as well as our approach to how we serve our, our users with our products is we very much believe in user choice. So we're very careful about where we lay down principles. Like if you were to look through, um, Google's websites and things like the number of principles where we'd say we anchor to these things and we know these things to be true. It is very, very light in my opinion. So what we do is we make a lot of services available. We make them convenient and we make sure that they're a great user experience. But we also recognize that when you get into things like mindset, 
especially as a global company, that can go so many different ways. You know, so if if uh, I, I'm I'm very anchored, you know, as an American, I'm very anchored in a Western way of thinking. Now, if I were to, I, I can kind of think back to conflict I would have with my um, Chinese Filipino dad, where he's very much more steeped in Confucianist and dialectical thinking, and where I would find him frustratingly confusing. He was probably didn't see a need to choose a left or a right he's like well both can be true and so that's where i i think like it, if you are in a place like let's say a google where it's very data driven uh you have a lot of smart math oriented people we'll say you can try to say like well how do i take the system how do i break it into like a gr regression model and then what do i start optimizing and then let me figure out the big leverage points and i can just focus on those on the other hand, as we you know, explore more about thinking through complexity, what you see is like, yeah, it's actually a dynamic system. And it's, uh, it's a, a wicked, you have a bunch of wicked problems to solve, where if you push one place, like, you know, the system adjusts somewhere else. And so you can't really optimize it. it, it like the analogy I like to use is, you can't show up like you are a mechanic fixing an engine. You are more like a gardener. And you're like, you, you can do some of the right things to tend the garden. The outcomes are, you can, you can influence them, but they're still largely out of your, your control. And so like you have the broad range of mindsets there. And so we're, um, I think we offer a lot of information. We offer a lot of guidance and how you might think about that. You have subgroups who have decided like, I believe in this philosophy or I want to invest in mindfulness or, or things like that. But then we, we let people explore and find their own way. It's interesting you mentioned that because I didn't even, I mean, obviously, yeah, Google is a global company. How do you, how do you account for, or maybe even what are some of the challenges you've experienced with, with mapping the health and performance program onto different cultures, different subgroups, like you mentioned? I think like a, a very specific example is if I look at our fitness offering, it is very based on the American commercial fitness industry and trends you would see there. So it's this combination of what we've learned from our partners in Exos, where a lot of their approaches and the way their operational models work, they look a lot more like what you might see in a collegiate strength and training facility or strength and conditioning facility. We have mostly people who do not picture themselves as strength and conditioning athletes. So they want something more akin to what they would experience in a, a commercial fitness facility out in the wild. So we, we have to serve both those needs with our designs. Now, we, are have, uh, we have a, a huge presence in, say, Asia Pacific. And if you think about just Southeast Asia, like so much of both Google and the world's population growth is right there in Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. And within there, there are like dozens of different cultures. And so our standard offering is basically a port of westernized fitness and the related culture. But you're like, so you're just going to show up in Jakarta and do that and hope that it lands. And it may or it may not. And so then you have to work with the local teams. And we, we do have a, a colleague over in Singapore whose job is to figure out like, okay, this might be our starting point, but we have to localize. And we have to learn the local culture. And um, 
depending on the country, might not even be in a place where a lot of people are open to that. Like it might seem quite radical to them. On the other hand, you have other cultures where I, I've I've been surprised as I have uh, explored on Instagram and gotten more connected that um, there's a not unsubstantial, like say bodybuilding movement in India. I had no idea. And so you see other places, they just kind of leapfrog forward to what is like being done that's more cutting edge in that space because they have access to it all via social media. So it's kind of all over the place, depending on the country. And in India and Southeast Asia, it's uh, especially diverse versus, say, Europe. Do you have, I mean, kind of my obvious follow-on thought is, do you have an example of where that has just kind of failed miserably? Like you you go into a, a new territory and, you know, oh, we think this will work. And then it's crickets. Because we're yet usually in, no, we're always in, in like large metropolitan areas. Um, I, there is like always a seed of Western culture there. Mm. And so it is never just fallen flat on its face. Um, I'm trying to think if there is, I, I think like for, for example, I went on mental health leave in January, 2022, and I've been very open about that. Other Asian Americans here in the U.S., uh, especially Asian American males, they find the fact that I'm speaking openly about that. Many of them find that like pretty progressive and radical. Mm-hmm. If I were to go now to some of my colleagues in China or my family over in Asia, they would find this flat out horrifying and say, what are you doing? You're committing career suicide. <laughs> and so it's kind of like, uh, you know, we, we weren't, in the U.S., we weren't, um, we're not that far removed from that same cultural response. Mm-hmm. But for that topic, it's, you know, maybe dial back 10, 20 years. So real briefly, just to like back up and do some like shopkeeping kind of stuff, there's, like, can you, for the audience and really for us, because I have a very limited understanding of, of what programs Google offers and what health and performance looks like in that setting, do you have like an overview you can give of what it is your team provides to Google as a company? Uh, yes. So my team oversees a suite of largely on-site, some digital amenities uh, focused on uh, supporting the health and well-being of uh, Google employees, as well as our vendor partners and um, uh, in some cases, their families. What that looks like is we um, design, deliver, and operate a global chain of fitness facilities. And so those look like a variety of different um, commercial style fitness facilities that are freely available to our employees, where you'd have something that looks more like the standard gym floor. You have group fitness, you might have dance. If you have a large enough population, you might have things like a martial arts studio, other things like climbing walls. Um, again, if you have a large enough campus, sports fields, and all the related programming for those. Additionally, we oversee a variety of services aimed at helping people uh, recover and manage stress. So we oversee, I think we have over 300 massage rooms with related services distributed around the world. 
we have a series of quiet spaces, what we call unplugged spaces. And those can be designed in a variety of ways where it could just be like a drop-in quiet space, or there could be more active programming. Like it could be set up as say a meditation or prayer room. Around those spaces, there's a community-driven effort that's just called GPAWS, which is our global meditation community. So we partner closely with them to make sure that they have um, support from some program management capacity as well as access to spaces. But that's largely driven by a community that's baked into Google, which is which is a really cool way to do it. Um, and we'd, we'd love to do more of that. And then lastly, we have a network uh, network we just call our well-being champs, which is something that many companies have to aid in their health promotion efforts. And those are employees who are embedded in the business who have raised their hand and said, hey, for any initiatives around health and well-being, I want to help you promote that. So that's what lives in my world. Now, um, we have various sister teams who also touch the health and well-being of our Google community distributed through the company, again, such as benefits, we have people development, which has certain um, uh, learning course offerings aimed at health and well-being. And then we have employee health and safety. And then you have various effort, efforts embedded in our product where sometimes it might just uh, be external user facing, but then there might be things that our employees themselves are testing. Were you guys, I remember um, this was years ago when we, on the special operations side, started looking at kind of, you know, a little bit of stress management stuff. And the narrative at the time was, oh, Google has nap pods. Was that you guys? I made sure that my team did not oversee the nap pods because that was just going to be a lot of bandwidth. Um, I saw pictures. They look super cool. So napping, it's, it's this interesting cultural experiment of will people nap at work? Yeah. And so depending on your comfort with perceived social deviance like for example if you put a nap pod out i'm i say like there it is that means i can nap and mm -hmm. i don't care if you see me go in there other people like get very self-conscious about it especially like the nap pod what it is is it's like a pod that covers your upper half but your legs are sticking out and so uh some people will say like yeah i'm not comfortable with that so then you end up with a nap room and then there's certain offices where people are very comfortable napping. So you actually have a nap room with setups for multiple people and people just drop in and grab a cot and nap. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's, it's a, a really well-designed, like nice experience. So it's not just like a cot on the floor, but there's, uh, there's cultural variation per person, per location. Uh, I, I haven't seen a clear pattern on napping at work. <laughs> But like, if you, if you were to just look at this from a performance aspect, you'd be like, yeah, if we can get more naps in your day, that, that like, depending on your sleep rhythms, like that could be a great performance ad, but the cultural barriers, maybe not the cultural barriers, the a diversity of cultural feelings related to napping, it is all over the map. That's so funny. Having once had a boss who was pretty comfortable kicking employees out of the office so he could nap undisturbed in this in the space we were in the the norms do vary widely across that spectrum <laughs> i haven't i've never heard that where it was get out so i can nap <laughs> lead from the front you mentioned um you mentioned stress 
and kind of the stress management programs and that kind of thing. And I'm curious because I know for us on the military side of the house, it's something that, well, I mean, stress is obviously something that everyone struggles with, but specifically with human performance, the measuring of the impact of those types of programs, how do you guys, how do you guys solve that problem or have discussions about that? We have definitely not solved it. We actually talked a lot with special forces military as we are developing our resilience programs to understand how they approach this. And what we found is like, we had a lot of commonalities, like, well, what we learned from special forces, while a lot of the adverse outcomes, like someone coming back from deployment and being highly traumatized, you know, your adverse outcomes can be really, really bad. And so it's, it's not to that intensity, say within our workplace, but in terms of things like stigma, a culture of just like kind of mental toughness and grit being the solution all all the time, instead of finding ways to get support and finding ways to apply self-care, we have a lot of the same cultural barriers. There's a woman named Lauren Witt, Dr. Lauren Witt. She's done a lot of I think external facing press articles on, on this, she's developed um, most of Google's resilience programs and oversees those. And so she spent a lot of time learning from again, special forces military, as well as pro athletes. So she was a um, U.S. women's soccer player back in the day before she got her PhD. So she has that mindset. Mm-hmm. And then she did her studies on resilience in that setting and then kind of connected the dots with other pro athletes or other high level athletes with special forces military. And that's informed a lot of our offerings. I'd like to say we have measurability down, but it's, it, that's a really difficult thing. But I mean, I think, I think not having it down brings up another kind of question that I have because again, we work in a space where metrics drive everything. And if you can't provide metrics, the assumption is the thing itself isn't working. And it sounds like, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sounds like organizationally, Google is accepting the fact that the metrics component might not be there, but they're still willing to invest the, the resources in providing those services. Is that Does that seem right? I think it's not so much that we accept the metrics are not there. What we do is we try to invest in evidence-based practice. Mm-hmm. So you look at what does the research tell us? How confident are we in the research? And then can we apply that in our workplace in a way that we feels like matches what was done in the research? And so for a lot of what was done in on resilience research and best practice and what we learned from special forces, we were pretty confident, like, if someone applies this, this will help them. On the other hand, like, and there's always a push to say, how do we measure this? Because, like, it, it's really hard to improve something and, and especially to optimize something if you can't get these really good measures. So sorry to give a disappointing answer there, but. No, I, I mean, I, it's perfect. I mean, you're, you're on a podcast themed on measures of performance and measures of effectiveness. So the, the seeking and often lack of finding answers to the measurability question is, is definitely a theme here. You're, you're in good company on that one. Kind of backing up slightly, that was kind of like the measurability of stress specifically. 
And I'm kind of going to zoom out to like health and performance in general. And on the front end, do you have some kind of needs analysis process that tells you what kind of interventions are appropriate for different populations or different locations? Like how do you decide what you're going to provide? And when you provide those things, do you, does that mean you're like set up with an outcome you're looking for, or is it just kind of employee service? Like we know this is something valuable to provide to people. Yeah, I would say it's very multifaceted. So on the one hand, you have things like evidence-based practice. On the other hand, you can do things like we do a lot of, whether it's broad surveys all the way down to individual user research or, or research of groups. And then we also have to recognize that our amenities program, yes, like health and well-being is one of the desired outcomes, but it's also things like collaboration. It's also things like creating an amazing workplace environment that's desirable. And so you don't really, we don't optimize for any one thing. It's kind of like an ongoing discussion with uh, the larger organization of, we don't have infinite resources. How do we want to invest this to create the workplace experience that you desire? And depending on the location, the local culture, and the leader, it's a, a very complex um, conversation. And so on the one hand, you could say, hey, you got to pick a lane. What are you optimizing for? That's just not going to work in a complex environment. You're like, well, I could do that, but then I lose the benefits of everything else. So instead, what's really needed is for those of us who oversee these programs, Again, to be able to think through the complexities, kind of manage the polarities and understand it's going to be a dynamic environment. So one will, if you optimize for one thing, you'll lose out somewhere else and you'll get a squeaky wheel. And so if your um, mindset is we can't have squeaky wheels whatsoever, you should probably work somewhere else. But again, back to the the mindset of, are you a mechanic or are you a gardener? If you're willing to garden and you're willing to do things like help certain plants flourish, tend to weeds, like restructure the garden, and you see that as the job and that, that dynamic system, nurturing of the dynamic system as like a fun, a fun journey, then I think you could flourish out of Google. So knowing knowing that measurability is not the be all end all and that it's a complex dynamic system. Do any of the interventions your health and performance team has conducted or any specific programs you've done, do they stand out as like you clearly saw an impact from it or it was immensely valuable to the employee? Like what, what has shined in what, in the programs you guys have delivered? I'll say that the thing that pops to the top over and over that I have seen both anecdotally external research pilots is how does this service help you build meaningful connections with other employees? Like basically, does this help you make friends? And if it does that, then the experience is amazing. Your accountability and your compliance to whatever the program is, is way higher. The value you derive from it is way, way higher that you get just wins across the board. And so you know, going against what I said earlier, where you have to optimize for multiple things. If you said you're doing a movement program, do you want to optimize for power output of the athlete or employee at the end? 
or for meaningful social connection. I'd be, I'd say meaningful social connection. I couldn't care less about power output. I'm laughing as you're saying that, you know, kind of one of your quote unquote measurables is like, basically, are you making friends? Cause I, I can only imagine if, and Alex could probably speak to this too. Like if, if that were the metric in the army, they would want us presenting a slide deck that had number of new friends made each week as an objective marker. Like it seems like, and I'm curious to your thoughts on this because it seems like a number of the metrics that you've touched on have been qualitative and subjective. And, and that's a really valuable kind of lens that you're looking through because you're dealing with people. And one of the things that we always kind of, I'll say we struggle with it is that it's, it always is quantitative. It's always objective. And so kind of the, again, as you're saying it, like I, I can see myself now putting that freaking chart together. That's like, Oh, my soldiers made 10 friends this week, sir. Ipso facto, my program is is successful. Thank you. How do you navigate, to drill it down to a singular question, how do you navigate the qualitative versus quantitative piece with some of these programs? So a long time ago, I was an electrical engineer. And I spent the first year of my career was to run simulations on an early version of the PlayStation 3 to show is this thing like can we manufacture this thing at scale or not especially like if you're you know you build a circuit board it might operate just fine in temperate northern california but if i go to singapore where it's super hot and humid that thing like um it, it, it a lot of the machines that would work in california will break down so what i learned there was first that yeah you present the data but the data is infinitely interpretable. And so one approach is like you try to clean up the data, but, but then there's always some component of story there. And so the first year of my work as an electrical engineer, I had my bachelor's in electrical engineering. I would pr produce the simulation data. Then I'd go into a room full of PhDs and just get my ass kicked like mm -hmm. over and over on a weekly basis. So after a while, I got pretty good at hopefully coming up with high integrity data and then where, where it was needed, being sure I had the right narrative to fill in the blanks so that we didn't end up going down rabbit holes that were unproductive or going through things where people see cracks in the data that make them question the integrity of the overall exercise. So as we go into something much more squirrely like health and well-being, where a lot of the measurability you just don't have in place either because it's hard to measure or because you have things like privacy concerns. Uh, you have a lot of big gaps. So I think there's a few things to consider. There's like, yes, what data do you have? Second is what's your narrative? And third, like who is the audience and where are you trying to move them from? And then where are you trying to move them to? And this can all start to feel like, so wait, are you just running a marketing exercise? I think the bigger question is, yes, you could be trying to do this just out of a pursuit of ground truth based on hard data. But I would ask for anyone who's seeking to drive progress or change, you have to ask yourself, it's never going to be infinitely clear or it's never going to be 100% clear. So what do you believe and what are you convicted enough about that you will drive forward for it? And then use what you have in terms of your data, your smarts, and your narrative to try to move in that direction. And that's leadership. So this is this is a little bit of a sidebar, 
have you have you heard the term McNamara fallacy before? No. So I, are we talking I about Robert McNamara? Yeah. So I don't think it's an accident that it's named after like the DOD, effectively like a DOD phenomenon. But I imagine you experience plenty of it since you work in like a tech and engineering world. But it is it's the fallacy of believing that only things that are quantitative matter and that like things only matter if you can quantify them. So like you, you end up making all your decisions based on only things you can chart and graph and count and things like that. And the classic example with military operations is thinking that you can count the number of enemy casualties and use that to measure how effective your operation is going. And that was a problem in Vietnam. It became a problem in more recent conflicts. Like when, if you haven't paused to reflect on the fact that your goal is like stability and governance and things like that, and that no amount of enemy casualties gets you any closer to that, you can, you can really lose track of what you're trying to do. And I think that's equally problematic in this health and performance space where people lose sight of what the actual end state they were hoping to achieve was, which is like happier, healthier, more productive people. And they start getting really, really focused on producing whatever metrics were selected as the important ones. And it sounds like you guys have done a pretty good job of managing that issue. I'll say we don't, we don't sugarcoat it and we don't bullshit that we have more than we actually have. And so we're like, that puts you into like uncomfortable conversation territory. So I'll say we're, we are all for leaning into the discomfort of that conversation. And I think there's, there's a good healthy realism around it, which is, is what makes it productive. But, but back to the McNamara fallacy, I think like one question I like to ask just to kind of make people uncomfortable and especially in the workplace and see how they react is, so if we're talking about health and well-being and people flourishing, if I step out into the parking lot uh, or, or we're grabbing a beer and I were to say like, well, everyone needs love. No one argues with that. Like everyone's a hundred percent on board on that. The moment I step into a conference room, first they're like, what is this love thing you're talking about? How do you define it? And then how do we measure it? I'm like, I don't see why that conversation changes just because I cross the threshold of the workplace building. Is, is that, I mean, you may have just answered this, but the thought that came to my mind as we were just talking about the McNamara stuff is like, have you... Or in the history of Google Health and Performance, I mean, has that had to has that ever had to be something that is effectively sold to kind of hire leadership and you have to justify your ROIs and is it, you know, constantly on the chopping block and blah, 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 blah? Or is it has it become enmeshed in the culture so much so that you have the freedom of maneuver to kind of take risks and, and explore new things? I think it's enmeshed in the culture. So up to the highest levels of leadership and throughout our history, there's a recognition that one of the superpowers of Google is our culture. And therefore one of the superpowers is fundamentally really hard to measure. And so it's something that I think it's everyone's responsibility to lean into it, to really try to make sense of like, what are the most important parts of the culture? What, what, what keeps our culture strong and what nurtures it? Now, we don't have infinite resources. So then you get into this discussion sometimes of like, well, what is the ROI on that? 
ROI is one way to think about, you know, the value of something. But then if you know that it supports the culture in various ways, you have to have this really hard conversation and you end up having to make really hard decisions under very, very incomplete data. And so it, it is really, really challenging. But the thing I, I love about Google is they're willing to go there where it's like, we're willing to get ourselves into uncomfortable situations like that, even if we have to really uncomfortably back our way out at some point. How, how would you advise somebody on embracing that level of uncomfort, uncomfortability? How would you speak to the cultural change component? Because I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll say this from the audience that we come from, like in this world, and, and I can quote leaders saying this, like cultural change is brought about by enforcing requirements and it's never a, a long-term vision of, like you mentioned, just embracing that uncertainty. I really like to reference this thing called the integral change model by an author, Paul Gibbons. I think he wrote the science of, what is it? The science of uh, successful organizational transformation, I think. And so what he says is you can think about it like, yeah, you, you just set up the policies or the systems and that will lead to culture change. That is definitely one way to do it. What he does is he, he's, he has like a, a two by two where he says, actually the complex system, if we map it, part of it is it's about the individual, part is about the collective, and then part of it is internal to us and part is external. So it's like, you know, thoughts, feelings, your experience versus things that are external where if they're, let me see if I can explain this. It would probably be easier if, if uh, I don't know how you would get a chart to your audience, but. Oh, we'll get it out there. So you could, you could say like at the individual level, you have things like your mindset, your, your beliefs, and that's internal. You go external, you'd say, what are the behaviors that you see this person do? If you go internal collective, you're talking about culture. Like what are our shared values? Uh, what are our shared stories? And then you go external and you go to, oh, there's systems and processes. And so I can see like, if you want to affect change quickly and you, you go to where you have control and you have a easy observability and that's the systems and processes. And you're like, yep, I'm just gonna change those. And over time people will get in line. That in, in, in and of itself says something about your culture of this is how we do change and through change, this is how we are going to shepherd you through it. It's pretty draconian. Now, if you're okay with that culture, then I'd say, yeah, definitely do it. If you come from a culture like we have at Google where it's very highly decentralized and high levels of empowerment, if you do that move too much, you start to destroy your culture, your intended culture. So you have to say like, okay, yes, I can, I can turn the knob of systems and processes. I also have to think about how do I speak to hearts and minds? How do I paint a picture of a different culture than what we have and try to get people on board with that? And then how do I make desired behaviors in line with the new culture either easier or motivate people to do that, um, or make them the default. It's interesting as you say that because I think that you know whether 
I think whether the military admits it or not, that one of the challenges in that cultural change piece is that you're dealing with constant turnover, which historically is billed as a, as a good thing. You expose folks to different environments, you know, bring in fresh leadership, et cetera. But then you also run this risk of, hey, I'm only going to be in this position for two years, three years, four years. I have to create change now and I have to force it because I can imagine in your environment, I mean, surely there's turnover, but it's something that you're you're kind of playing the long game. Have you, I guess, have you experienced scenarios where new leadership comes in or, or and, and they try to either change it or if not, if they embrace what's already there, you know, what does that look like? This is not unique to Google. I'll, I'll say like, let, let's say within, well, first I'll talk about say within a competitive, highly competitive industry like the tech industry. The amount of say, rockstar technical talent is really limited. So if you get your rock star and they're not toxic for your culture, like you want to do everything you can to retain them. Cause like the, the, the leverage on one of those people is huge. It's like massive. So I think that's kind of the backdrop of the space that say, the Googles, the Metas, the Amazons, Apples, like how they operate and how their operating model works. Like you need that talent. You got to hold on to it. So that's one thing. I have seen not, not just specific to the tech industry now, but in the business world, when a new leader comes in, you know, there's often a urge to make your mark. I think there's, there's make your mark, like to show action is happening. And then two, it's how, how willing am I to change the organization versus how willing am I to change myself to fit the organization? And so you can kind of see the push-pull. And so certain um, leaders, their default entry move might be clean house. And, you know, that's... Mm, there are upsides and downsides to that. It, it depends, like, what was the narrative of the organization coming in? Like, was this seen as this organization isn't really doing so well? Some turnover uh, and restructuring it might be the right thing for it. On the other hand, you could say, did this person just come in and burn this thing to the ground and rebuild it so it looked like they were doing something? Or, or they don't know how to, uh, you know, like, turn around a team while keeping it intact. So that, that's, that's definitely there and you, you see it rinse and repeat occasionally and it always like, it's a head scratcher because you, you can't tell like, was that the right thing or not? I'm appreciating this because I had like some idea of where I thought this episode was going to go and nowhere on that list was like a discussion of cultural change and transformational change dynamics and things like that. And I, I love when episodes do that because I think it brings out what's like actually the necessary conversation. I I do want to set you up with an opportunity before we go too long, though, given your powerlifting background and given that a huge part of what you said Google Health and Performance provides is space for physical fitness stuff. I think there's a, a conversation to be had, something the military at large is having an issue with and the army specifically is having an issue with is as we integrate service members with more technical jobs that are crucial to what the military does it becomes more confusing what the role of physical fitness is and what the standards should be. And how do we maintain a culture of like people prepared for ground combat and things like that. When 
people know that their job is primarily in front of a computer. And given the population you work with and what Google does and is and the image of those people, like we can tell soldiers they have an annual physical fitness test and just like force them to care to a certain degree. I don't think that's necessarily the right answer, but what, what role does physical fitness play in health and wellness and performance and the social stuff you're talking about when you're in a company where the task is not necessarily inherently terribly physical? So I think this goes back to when I talked about the operating model of um, many companies in the tech industry where you have this talent and like it's in limited supply. So you really need to retain them. And therefore they got to flourish in your system. And so if you think about like, well, what do you need to flourish and perform at a high level? The perform at a high level, if you've hired someone talented, they're probably pretty driven and they have the capabilities to do that. You also need to be mindful of the culture you put them into, as well as the ways of working in that organization. So does a larger machine and environment around them work? And now if you go down to the individual, um, we like to talk about uh, supporting the physical, mental, social, and spiritual health of our employees. And so you could dig infinitely deep into like, well, what do you mean by each of those? And so I think the on the physical side, I think an advantage we have is that as a California-based company, I think a lot of our culture springs out of that. So it's a pretty progressive metropolitan population base where health and well-being behaviors, you have people who are generally more active, generally eat a little healthier. And that that's not that's not uniform around the world. But if therefore we suggest things like you should probably get some exercise regularly, you should probably eat more plants drink water regularly, get your eight hours of sleep and here's some research. We don't get pushback on that. Like as long as we're not trying to force behaviors on people, people are like, it's somewhere between like, I, I agree. And I'm going to try to do that to you're probably right, but I'm not going to prioritize that right now. And so, uh, but we don't get hard pushback. Now I think the, the other things that we can look at are, um, the social side of it. And so there's so much research showing how meaningful connection in the workplace is both good for the employee and good for the business. Where if, for example, I think, I, I forget who it was. I may have been Gallup who did research showing that if you say you have a best friend at work, like your health, your well-being is way higher, your performance is way higher and the retention of employees who say that is just way, way higher. And so it's like, okay, so we can get you a meaningful human connection, which also ties um, like at the individual level, workplace aside is really good for you. If you look at the research around the negative effects of loneliness, human connection is like something that's clearly needed. And then there's all these benefits in the workplace. So that's another thing we're like, okay, we, we clearly want to invest there. And then finally, spiritual health, which I think is, it's not a term I hear thrown around a lot, and I've heard it defined a few different ways. The way I like to think about it is how would you evaluate your connection with yourself, with others, and then something greater that knits us together. And so 
that is a very personal thing, especially your connection with yourself or something greater. But are we creating an environment where you can explore that and it is supported for you to do so? And via our employee resource groups, via some of our services, I believe we are making space for that. Now, there is a tension because as a high-performance environment, you can definitely neglect those areas of your life and invest fully in work. You know, looking at rates of burnout across the global workforce right now, it's, uh, you know, the Microsoft research shows it's about a one out of two people in the global workforce are reporting they're burnt out at work. It raises questions around culturally, are we in a place where people are connected with themselves, with each other, or something greater? And then how are they doing in all those other aspects of their health and well-being? So we don't have it solved, but we do feel like we have a leg up on a lot of where, um, how this is done at other companies. This, okay. So this, this might come across as a weird question, but as I'm sitting here thinking of like, you know, I'm Owen Wilson and I just got hired at Google as an intern and I have all these like fantastic amenities. I have this culture, like it's like you mentioned, best friend at work. Like, do you guys, is there a risk of someone not being able to disconnect from work in the sense that all of these things provide this beautiful culture, but you know, when they leave, that's, that's not there. How do they maintain, you know, and again, I don't even know if that question makes any sense, but is that something that you guys encounter? It totally makes sense. Like, I, I think I could think of it in, in two ways. One is if we provided you a lot of things that support your lifestyle, like, could you, could you live at Google? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I can talk about this because I think it's publicly accessible. There was an employee who was living in a van like a nicely outfitted van that he would just kind of move around the campus. <laughs> and yeah, he could, you, you can live at Google. So that is one example where I'm like, uh, I didn't talk to him. Maybe he was perfectly happy. Like maybe he was flourishing. Not what I would recommend for most people. So that's an edge case, but so you could in theory live at Google. Another way to think of it is, that we do see is if you hire a lot of highly driven people, you put them together and in a system that does nurture them pretty well, you can also like heighten their tendency to already push hard and push even harder. And so um, this wasn't specific to Google, but I had seen research that I believe it was in the broader tech industry. It was your motivation to, to work hard, how much of that comes from you versus your manager. And for these high-performing tech companies, it was overwhelmingly from the employee. So when you're hiring these rock stars, they are rock stars because, you know, it, it's kind of like a um, pro sports team. You're like, you don't arrive at the Yankees and decide, well, I'm at the Yankees. I better start trying. <laughs> you're like, you have been busting your butt your entire life. And now you're in the Yankees, you're going to bust your butt even harder. And that can lead to burnout. So that's, that's like the, not just having the amenities available, but making clear like, Hey, like you, you have to care for yourself in a sustainable way, even though that message can be hard to hear. 
especially in like an environment that feels so fast paced, like we, we have to be consistent about that. Just as a brief aside, I know your van life guy was an edge case, but I did eight years of active duty before I got into health and performance. And I personally have never gone full van life, but I've known multiple soldiers who are living in vans or RVs or things like that. They love the army so much. It's, it's part of the nature of short (laughs) assignments and things like that, but were were they happy with van life? Yeah. I mean, I think they were mostly happy. I think they're pretty happy about the rent compared to getting an actual place. Especially like most, a lot of the cases were like husbands who were geographically separated from the rest of their family. So the rest of the family gets the house and they live in whatever they live in for X number of months. But can you, I mean, this is like a total aside, but can you do that? What do you mean? Like, can you just park a van on a military base as you're as an active duty soldier and just live there? Rules vary. A lot of bases have like RV sites <laughs> on the installation. Can you do that at Google? Like, was that legal at Google? Or was it just like, oh, we didn't even think to have a rule about this i'm not i'm not going to comment on legality <laughs> I have no idea. was it you it's in the news <laughs> I, I if there was a legal thing someone else evaluated it i am not gonna oh, that oh man i'll ask one you you mentioned kind of the tagline for google health and performance which is supporting the physical mental social and spiritual health and well-being of google's global workforce and part of that's kind of neat because it, it overlaps with a lot of what the DOD is doing. We have like very similar domains of wellness across all the services. Do you align specific professionals to specific components of that? Like, are there, do you like point at a person and say your responsibility is physical and somebody else, your responsibility is spiritual. And if so, like, what does your team consist of who, who works on what? Yeah. So I, I think if, if I just compare say my team with say benefits, one easy way to make a delineation is if it's going to touch your healthcare plan, that clearly sits with benefits. If there's something that's uh, much more about proactive lifestyle behaviors or influencing, say, social health, where we're, we're building something like an amenity or an event to bring people together, that sits much more with my team because we can move on that type of thing. Spiritual health is right now, I think that's kind of aspirational where we don't actually know how to like, there's not like one central program, but we want to make sure that's in the conversation to say, we recognize this is important. We recognize there are some places you can go to have this conversation in the Google community, but we want to make sure it doesn't get pushed off the table because looking at, you know, the state of say society, the state of say some of these burnout trends, we know that people need to be investing time in connection with self, each other, and something greater. And so I, I think my, the, the dispersed community does a lot to support employees on that. We seek to do more, but I can't say that it's like we have it to the point where we're like, we know exactly what this is, and it's a robust set of programs. So... I mean, effectively, you guys are kind of leaning into that. And it it brings up a question that I have, and I'll I'll kind of cage this around, you know, possibly lessons learned from from COVID and how that changed the environment. But with regards to health and performance, what are some things that you guys are really leaning into in terms of like next steps, looking, you know, towards the future? And it can be different offerings or just even like you mentioned, the spirituality component, just 
just thoughts and ideas about what the human performance landscape might look like for you guys? The big emphasis again is it's definitely social health. So you can think of why that's important from a few different angles. During the pandemic, we were all isolated. We tried to maintain our connections and our culture via Zoom for, you know, a year, two years, depending on when your community started to return back to work. At the same time, companies like a Google or like a Amazon or a Facebook, they grew dramatically during the pandemic. So you welcomed a lot of new people into your workplace who may not have had those connections. So it's like current, previous existing connections, you, you didn't see your friends for a year or two. Uh, you brought in a bunch of new friends and now you're trying to knit yourselves back together into like a community that's trying to achieve some really hard things. And so investment in ways to help people come together and build meaningful connections, it's, it directly supports the health and well-being of individuals, whether in the workplace or not. Two, I think it helps create a work environment that people will actually want to come back to, especially after being separate for one to two years and getting used to working from home. And then three, it's just a necessary component to knit your culture back together so that you didn't build it all via Zoom. Not that that can't be done, but it's, it's just different. Okay. So I got to, I want to bring this around to you specifically because I mean, your, your background is an interesting one, competitive powerlifter, personal trainer, you, like you mentioned, started in electrical engineering, more technical roles. So how do you, how have you found that those tie together in what you're doing now? The powerlifting electrical engineer. The electrical engineering at the time when I was going through, say the academic side of it, like I remember sitting in a compound semiconductor class and my roommate, who was a few years ahead of me, he kind of challenged me in, in, in a really condescending way where he said, oh yeah, when you, it was called ECE 340. He said, when you get to EC 340, you're going to get weeded out of this program. You're not going to make it. <laughs> and that was my freshman year. And I, uh, having a chip on my shoulder, I thought, fuck you. I got to my junior year and I said, I'm going to every office hours until I figure this thing out. And so I went to every office hours. I set the curve in the class. But in the process, what I had to do is like the level of abstract thinking to think about how like particles move around in a semiconductor where you can't observe any of it. And you have to think about like, what are all these forces? How do they work together? How, now piece this together into a integrated circuit and then piece those integrated circuits, several hundred million or now billions of them into a microprocessor. The level and challenge of systems thinking on that is just ridiculous. And so I left electrical engineering. And I was like, wow, I did a lot of hustling and hard work there. <laughs> I'm flushing that down the toilet. <laughs> However, now when I sit in these discussions where we're trying to think about, well, how does this all work together? Physical health, mental health, social and spiritual health. Or you ask me, um, like the, I, I like to talk about the model of my life as um, I have my roles of husband and father, 
competitive athlete and then leader in the workplace, a systems diagram instantly appears in my head. I'm like, yes, it's complex, but um, I got it. I don't think I could have gotten, my brain wouldn't work that way if not for electrical engineering and the pounding I took to get through that material, <laughs> thanks to my um, freshman year roommate who didn't believe in me. Are you still friends with him? No, I can't find him. <laughs> I would have been friends with him. He, you can't Google him? I, I, I've tried. Like, I, I, like, despite that, I liked him. At some point, he, um, he decided that I didn't like him, and uh, it all went down the tubes. Like, this is what happens when you put, like, teenagers or 20-year-olds living together. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if they'd had a health and performance program focused on social connection at school when you were there. Yeah, so wait, you mean putting it? 18 to 20-year-olds in a, in a confined space doesn't produce ideal outcomes every single time? No, of course. He's talking about the Army now. Yeah, what? <laughs> Does the military ever do that? Just give them weapons. <laughs> that solves all the problems. <laughs> Yeah, so so that's the electrical engineering side. Now on the powerlifting side, it's interesting. Like the, I'm a master's athlete, and so I have to like my progression happens at a has to be a slow and steady pace. But I am, um, let's see, I think I'm about ten years into the sport now. And when I started, I was very mediocre, and then I got to the point where I was very competitive as a master's athlete. And now I am starting to get quite competitive as what's called an open athlete, which is all age classes. And throughout that entire process, like I'm not old, but I have my, my list of injuries, my list of lingering injuries. My recovery doesn't work the way it used to. I've taken on a lot more stress in life. So it's very much again, like I can't approach it like a mechanic where I'm like, okay, here's the program. Here's the things we need to optimize, drive hard. Can't do that. I have to think of it like a gardener where I'd say, here's what we're working with today. We got some rain. The soil's good. Let's, uh, let's plant some more seeds, see where this goes and see if we can keep this thing alive for as long as possible. And so powerlifting to me in this walk of mastery through it is a whole analogy for complex systems thinking, whether that be applied to health and well-being for me, health and well-being for a workplace community, or thinking more holistically about my life, these three roles of husband and father, competitive athlete, and leader in the workplace, and how they all push and pull on each other. And so a lot of the time, there's a book called uh, The Book of Five Rings mm -hmm. by Miyamoto Musashi. Yeah, it's it's strange how that's called. On in, in the sword on in the strength and conditioning community. Yeah. Yes. If sword fighting book, but it's a strange life philosophy book as well. Mm -hmm. And he talks about the concept of knowing 10,000 things by knowing one thing really well. And I think about the things I understand about powerlifting and how to keep making progress, even though I'm, you know, operating in a 44 year old body that has. Like I'm right now I'm going through a weight cut and I'm watching my friends on Instagram who are doing like similar weight class and uh, doing a weight cut, but they're in their early twenties. And that means they can only eat say 2,500 calories. And I'm like, I'm down to 1500 calories a day and doing cardio to make this weight cut. And so I'm like, this is what it's going to take to keep this thing moving. Like this is 
for a 44 year old body, like this is what's required. And so if I do this, I'm going to take on more stress. I'm going to show up with less energy, other places, how I'm going to manage the push pull between the other roles in my life. And I'm learning all this via powerlifting. I'm curious as a, as a systems thinker, who are your, your influences in the powerlifting space? Like, you know, are you a Mike Tashira guy? Oh, yeah. I am a reactive training systems mm-hmm. athlete. Yes. I, 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 as uh, soon as you started talking about gardeners and mechanics, I was like, I think I know who he likes. <laughs> yeah. I'm, uh, I'm doing a podcast with Mike in two weeks. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh, makes sense. So I do, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about it before we close out here. If, if people Google you pun intended, they're going to find a lot of discussion on various forums about mental health, mental health in the workplace, taking mental health leave, all of those kinds of things. That's also something the military has been talking about a lot lately. And so from, from what you've learned, talking about it, engaging with leaders on the subject, like what are the lessons you've taken away? And really like kind of specifically, what are some things you think the military could take from that? Or what do you think the military might get wrong or what, whatever direction you want to take it? I just want to give you a, a moment to talk about that since it's been kind of your, the banner you've carried for a while recently. So a few things, um, just for context, since I returned from mental health leave, I've been openly talking about it. And as I talked more about it, first I did a podcast and I posted it on LinkedIn and it got a lot more engagement. It got 20 times the engagement that I would normally get on a post. And so I posted again and then I get more in podcast invitations and I get more people reaching out saying, thank you for saying that. And what I realized was there's just this huge hunger for someone to stand up and say, yeah, I struggled with my mental health or I still struggle with it. This is what it felt like and it's okay, especially someone in a leadership position. And so I decided knowing I'm getting this feedback and knowing the data around where we're at with mental health and burnout in the workplace, I'm not really living up to the mission of my career and my programs unless I speak openly about this because this is one of the most powerful ways that I can drive change. So that's the context. Two things that I've learned. One is you'll often right now hear this tagline going around saying vulnerability is a superpower. And the motivation there is to tell people like, Hey, showing up with vulnerability is actually a really powerful way to move people as a leader. So I'll, I'll say, this is what I've seen in terms of how that actually works. And then two, I'll, I'll offer people a call to action. One is the way I see it works is when I'm vulnerable and I tell my story, it enables deeper connection with the person listening to that story. Not because they think the story is so amazing, but because they see themselves in the story. So that's the, the first thing. Once we have that deeper connection, we can start having these harder conversations where someone can say, hey, I'm struggling too. If you can have those harder conversations, that's when you can actually create the hope for change. So it's, it's so incredibly powerful, but it takes someone being courageous and stepping up and being, being vulnerable, not just saying we should all be more vulnerable because the next question is like, well, what does that look like? It's like, well, 
someone's better, someone better model it. And when they model it, you better celebrate them or else everyone's going to clamp down and not be vulnerable after that. <laughs> so that's how I see vulnerability as a superpower. So let's say I'm a leader and I want to build a positive culture. If I can get people to open up by taking a risk and exposing a little bit of myself, that is huge strength. And then if I were to ask people like, well, why aren't you opening up? I've never heard a good excuse for it. Like the two excuses are, I have nothing to open up about, maybe. And the other one is a, I get a long-winded monologue where they're basically saying I'm afraid, which is totally fair because the stigma is real. And now that comes to the question of someone needs, like someone's got to be the first one to jump off this cliff. And so that's what I've been trying to do with my career where the, the calculus for my career, it was like, yeah, if I play it safe, I know I won't disrupt anything at, at work. I hopefully I wouldn't lose respect or reputation, but the calculus was by me not showing up different, I'm not proud of how I'm showing up as a husband and father. That's more important than my paycheck. So I jumped off the cliff and I shared. So my call to action is if you're a leader in this ecosystem and you knew you could leverage a door open for some people like that and help them, what is stopping you? Like, what do you value? If you really thought about what's possible, like how you could help other people, is that more important than your safety and your paycheck? And I'm not going to put a judgment there because I don't know your financial situation. I don't know your broader context. Maybe you really got to hold on to that job. But for some of us, I believe there are many more of us that can make that leap. But what's holding us back is just stigma and fear. So that's that's the number uh, the number one that I would offer. I like that you you phrase it that way because I think there's there's a commentary too there just generally speaking about cultural change and modeling cultural change and and being you know we've talked in here before about kind of the first follower concept and I think you kind of nailed it and, and you can use your own personal experience to speak to that as as a as a closer I have a two parter for you um, when we think of Google Health and performance and kind of your journey your experience as as the leader in that space. Where do you think are some of the areas where you guys are, you know, I'll use the word weak, but really like where are some areas that you know you could sort of shore up? And then where do you guys think that you're you're really strong and, and some of your kind of like your big wins just as kind of a two-parter? So I think in terms of where we are, I don't know if I'll say weak or... Yeah, weak is a, weak is a good word. <laughs> Or uh, we, I can't say, well, I'll, I'll say we're struggling just as much as everyone else is. I think one, because we, um, we recognize that the value of our programs is so multifaceted in the culture, like measurement. I don't think we're doing better than, than many others there. I think we acknowledge it pretty openly. Like it's, uh, it's interesting when I go, <laughs> go to uh, conferences to present like the sin of saying like, yeah, we don't have that figured out. I don't know how to measure that in our culture. I just don't hear anyone else say that on the podium. And I'm like, but I know you don't because there's no, there's no practice for, for measuring that. So anyway, let's, let's put that aside. So measurements one, and then two, I think you're, uh, we're victims of our own success where 
Um, I think now with the current economic environment, we're asking a lot more of like, hey, Google's going to continue to grow. How, what are the most important parts of this program to invest in? And so like, yeah, the fitness centers are great. And the massage program's amazing. All these sports fields, quiet rooms, meditation spaces, they're all wonderful. But if you had to make hard choices, what is going to move the needle for both the individuals as well as like teams and organizations and the overall business? And so now if I had to hone in and say where I believe we are strong or where I believe we're going to get really strong, again, our investments in social health or community. So we've been working closely with an author, Charles Vogel, who wrote the book, The Art of Community, and more recently, Building Brand Communities, which is kind of like the playbook companion to Art of Community. And versus looking at a bunch of, say, studies or research, he actually, he has a master's of divinity from Yale. And he's looked at a series of both communities and spiritual traditions across society and across history to say, what are the common practices or features of building like really strong communities? And so we've taken a lot of what he's, what he teaches and started to implement it in our programs to say, like, we're not just going to build it and, and hope they will come. Like, let's systematize this to say, we know how to build like really powerful communities that nurture connection and then apply it in a bunch of different contexts. And we have like some early signs that it, it is working well in certain parts of our community. Like actually the barbell strength community is one of the probably strongest communities at Google, like no pun intended, but like socially <laughs> in terms of connection strongest. And uh, we feel like, we believe that a lot of the principles we learn from Charles Vogel that we see there, we can replicate other places. And if if we do that and we end up giving a lot of people new friends, I'm just going to call that a win for humanity. I mean, I can't think of a better way to close this than by mentioning that you guys are looking to create wins for humanity. So yeah, that was awesome. I'll be the first one to say, Newton, thank you for coming on. Like Alex mentioned, I mean, you know, we, we script these a little bit, but I think this is gone down some fascinating rabbit holes that are going to be incredibly valuable for people <laughs> listening. And I, I mean that in the best way possible. So thank you. Uh, happy to do it. I, I uh, right before this, I was normally I spend some time with the questions that you send me and, and think through like, what might I say to this? We had some interesting pivots with childcare. So I was just feeding a baby all the way up until we started. So I'm, I'm like, Let's dive in. We will see where this goes. Perfect. I had a that's lot the fun. way we prefer it. That's how we that's how we prefer it. So thank you to your child for uh preventing you from reading the questions out of that. Hey Alex, let's cover our ass real quick. Oh, great idea, Drew. All right, guys. The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. Before you go, please rate and review the pod on the listening platform of your choice. You can also visit us on our website at www.mopsinmos.com. That's mops, the letter in mos.com. You can check out the library of podcast episodes our latest blog entries, any helpful resources, and also sign up for our newsletter. Drew nailed it. 
Just to underline a couple of things, the podcast entries have in-depth show notes on the website. So if you missed anything or you want to read any of the research we talk about, it is all there. You can, at the bottom of the website, sign up with your email and receive future updates from us. The blog posts go a little bit more in-depth in kind of written form on a couple of topics we get questions about all the time. But most importantly, I just want to ask all you guys, our best way the word gets out is absolutely word of mouth. So tell your friends, tell the people you work with, anybody you think would find it useful. Thanks for spreading the word. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to shoot us an email at either Drew or Alex at mopsandmos.com. Or there's a contact form on the website. Thank you.